Today I'll begin an exploration of my third argument for God's existence, namely the argument from contingency. Things which don't have to exist but do need an explanation in something that must exist necessarily. I'm Jason Dooley, and you're listening to the Thinking to Believe podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. Believe it or not, we finally finished the Kalam cosmological argument, uh, 14 episodes, and we are done. So (laughs) that is now uh, behind us. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. As I said, it's one of my favorite arguments, and so I wanted to do it justice and go into the amount of detail that I think it deserves, because because the argument is so powerful, and I think it is so defensible. But now today we're going to begin part 22 of our series on Does God Exist, looking at the third argument that I offer for the existence of God, and this is the argument from contingency, or the contingency argument. I'll cover the entirety of this argument in just three episodes, so I'm not going to do a one-and-done as I did for the Kalam and for other series. So let me lay out for you what I will cover over the next three episodes. In today's episode, I'm going to look at the objective of the argument, uh, the key to understanding the argument and successfully persuading somebody of the argument. We'll look at specific concepts that need to be understood if one is going to be able to fully grasp the argument And then I'll look at a few different versions of how you could state the argument briefly. Next week, I'll look at the argument in more detail. I'll flesh it out, talk about the different tactics of how we can convey the argument to others. And the third episode will be dedicated to objections that are raised against the argument and what I think are appropriate responses to those objections. So with that, let's go ahead and get into the argument. I'll start off with something that's just a no-brainer, being Captain Obvious here, but we all recognize that something exists. But the real question is, why does something exist? Why is there something rather than nothing at all? I mean, after all, there's nothing logically incoherent about the concept of non-existence. It seems at least logically possible that there could have been nothing. So why is there something rather than nothing. Well, for millennia, secular and religious philosophers and even scientists, they've tried to say that the universe exists eternally. It's just a brute fact. Famously, Bertrand Russell had quipped, the universe is just there, and that's all. That was his answer. It just exists. There's no reason why it exists. There's no explanation for it. There is no answer to the question of why there is something rather than nothing. Now, it must be understood that there is a philosophical payoff to this view. Believing that the universe has existed forever, that it exists as a brute fact, that it is inexplicable, allows one to avoid the question of what caused the universe, and thus they can avoid the question of God's existence. But as David Berlinski had observed, quote, while an eternal universe makes it meaningless to ask when the universe began to exist, since its existence is not necessary, 
it is still meaningful to ask why it exists. The idea here is that even if the universe is eternal, it still needs a cause for the simple reason that the universe is contingent. It is not metaphysically necessary. And you say, what in the world does that mean? What is contingent? What is necessary? Well, we'll talk about that when we talk about the key concepts to understand momentarily. But first, let me look at the objective of the argument. What is this argument trying to accomplish? Well, the objective of the contingency argument is to demonstrate that there is an eternal necessary being like God who is required to explain why there is a universe. Everything that exists requires an explanation for why it exists. And the explanation for why the universe exists is that it was caused by God. So the contingency argument not only gives you a theistic being, it doesn't only tell you that God does exist, but that God must exist. He is a necessary being. Now, unlike the Kalam argument that we just reviewed, the contingency argument does not argue for, and it does not assume that the universe had a beginning. So it's a cosmological argument just like the Kalam, but the Kalam makes the assumption and then tries to prove that the universe had a beginning. The contingency argument does not argue that the universe had a beginning. The contingency argument assumes for the sake of argument that the universe is eternal and says even if the universe had no beginning, even if the universe is eternal, it still requires a cause because the universe is contingent and contingent things require an explanation. And the contingency argument argues that God must exist to explain the existence of a temporal, uh, contingent, or even an eternal contingent universe. Well, what is the key to the argument? Well, the keys to persuading someone by this argument that there is a God is to convince them that an infinite regress of causation is impossible. And secondly, that all contingent beings, including the universe, requires an external cause for their existence. So what do I mean by that? Well, by an infinite regress of causes, we're talking about a chain of cause and effect that goes back forever and ever and ever and ever. That no matter how far back you go in time, all the way back to eternity, there is a prior cause to some given effect. Um, whereas when I talk about contingent beings requiring an external cause for their existence, this is the idea that anything that does not have to exist and yet does exist had to be caused to exist by something outside of itself. So those are the two keys to the argument, convincing them that an infinite, infinite regress of causes and explanations is impossible and that all contingent beings require an external cause for their existence. Now, you might be confused at this point with talk of contingency and necessity. Um, you know, what does that mean? Infinite regress. So this is the perfect time to explain some of these concepts that are critical to understanding the argument. So I'll deal with three different concepts. Talk about contingency and necessity. 
I'll talk about the principle of sufficient reason, and finally, the notion of an infinite regress. All right, what is contingency and necessity? Well, there are two types of beings that exist. There are those that exist contingently and those that exist necessarily. Something exists contingently if it hasn't always existed or it does not need to exist. So even if it's eternal, as long as it did not need to exist, it still is considered contingent. Um, to be contingent means that some, something's existence is derived from a source outside of itself. So if it hasn't always existed, but it came into being, or if it's always existed, but it did not need to exist, then its existence has to be derived from some source outside of itself, and that's what we mean by a contingent being. In other words, contingent beings only exist in virtue of some other being that caused them to come into being. And by being here, I don't necessarily mean like a, you know, we think of being, we think of personal something, like a human being is a person. I'm not using the word being in that sense. A being is an, an existent, something that exists. So contingent beings exist in virtue of some other being that caused them to come into existence. Their existence can only be explained in terms of some prior causal agent. Now, in contrast to contingent beings, there are necessary beings. Something is necessary if it cannot not exist. It must exist. That's the idea behind a necessary being. Because necessary beings must exist, then that means they must be eternal. Because if they must exist, then there could never be a time where they did not exist. So necessary beings are essentially eternal, but not but it's not true that every eternal being is necessary. There could be something that is eternal that is not necessary, but every necessary being must be eternal. Another way of thinking of a necessary being is to say that it is self-existent. That is to say, its existence isn't derived from some source outside of itself. It doesn't gain its being from some external cause. Rather, it has being in and of itself. It is eternal. It cannot not exist. So this is the kind of being that we would say exists in every possible world. In any world you could imagine, a necessary being would be part of that world. So if you had a billion possible worlds that you conceived of, in each one of those worlds, a necessary being would have to exist. Now, if God exists, he is a necessary being. Why? Because God is the greatest conceivable being. That is what it means to be God. And since it is greater to exist necessarily than it is to exist contingently, then God must be a necessary being because it is greater to be the source of being, to have being in and of yourself than it is to have being derived from some external source. So that's contingent beings and necessary beings. And God, if he exists, would be a necessary being. 
the universe would be a contingent being, even if it has existed for all of eternity. If you find value in the Thinking to Believe podcast, chances are you know others who could benefit from it as well. So help me spread the word by sharing this podcast with friends and family. You can also rate my podcast to increase my ranking, thereby making my podcast more visible to others. With your help, I can expose more non-believers to the evidence for Christianity and help more Christians to better understand their faith and how Christianity speaks to the pressing issues of our day. All right, the next concept that is important to understand if you're going to grasp this argument is the principle of sufficient reason. Gottfried Leibniz was the first person to articulate this principle, and he stated the principle as follows. No fact can be real or existent, no statement true, unless there be a sufficient reason why it is so and not otherwise. Now, his principle has since come under fire from other philosophers because Leibniz included every fact or every truth in the principle of sufficient reason, and that's demonstrably false. As William Lane Craig writes, he says, not every fact, it seems, can have an explanation, for there cannot be an explanation of what Alexander Proust calls the big contingent conjunctive fact which is itself the conjunction of all the contingent facts there are. For if the explanation of the BCCF, the big contingent conjunctive fact, is contingent, then it too must have a further explanation, which is impossible since the BCCF includes all the contingent facts there are. On the other hand, if the explanation of the BCCF is necessary, then the fact explained by it must also be necessary, which is impossible since the BCCF is contingent. Now, if you didn't get that, that's fine. The point here is the way that Leibniz constructed this principle is too strong of a position, and therefore some philosophers have rejected it. But I think it's wrong to reject the principle. It just needs to be stated differently. It needs to be stated, you know, in a in a fashion that is not as strong as Leibniz. Now, William Lane Craig has formulated a more modest version of the principle of sufficient reason, or the PSR, that does not succumb to the same criticisms of Leibniz's formulation. Here are three different ways that William Lane Craig has formulated this principle. For any contingently existing thing, there is an explanation for why that thing exists. So that's a version of the principle of sufficient reason. If there's a contingent thing, then there has to be an explanation for why it exists. Second formulation. In the case of any contingent state of affairs, there is either an explanation for why that state of affairs obtains, or else there is an explanation for why no explanation is needed. In other words, any thing or any state of affairs that there might be, you only have one of two options. Either you have to have an explanation for why the thing exists, or you have to have an explanation for why you don't need an explanation for why that thing exists. So whether you say it has an explanation or doesn't have an explanation, you still need to explain it. Either by explaining why the state of affairs obtains, 
or explaining why you don't need to explain a, a reason for its existence. Either way, some sort of an explanation is needed for a contingent thing. The third formulation that Craig offers is everything that exists has an explanation for why it exists, either in the necessity of its own nature or in an external cause. And this tends to be, I think, his preferred formulation of the principle of sufficient reason, and it's one that I like as well. In other words, everything that exists has to have an explanation for why it exists, and there are two different possibilities of explanation. Either there's an external cause that brought that contingent being into existence, or there is something about the nature of the thing itself that requires that it exist. This is to say that everything that exists is either a contingent being or a necessary being. Either it is contingent and has an, a, an explanation for why it exists in some external cause, or it is a necessary being that the explanation for its existence resides in itself, that the very nature of the thing is such that it must exist and cannot not exist. So no matter how you formulate the principle of sufficient reason, the idea behind it is that everything that exists, exists for a reason. There is some explanation for why it exists. The third concept to understand is the concept of an infinite regress. An infinite regress is a series that has no first member that initiates the series. No matter how far back you go, there will always be some prior member, some prior cause. So a bottomless pit would be an example of an infinite regress or an infinite staircase. No matter how many staircases you descend, you're never going to reach the bottom of the staircase because it regresses for infinity. There's no last step. There's no first step. And if the past is eternal it would also form an infinite regress such that you could never arrive at the first moment of time if you were traveling backwards in time, even if you traveled for an infinite amount of time. No matter how long you'd ever traveled, you would never find the first moment because it is an infinite regress. So if the universe has existed eternally, then it would be an infinite regress of time. All right, so there you have it. We've looked at the key to the argument, the ob objective of the argument. We've looked at the different concepts that are critical to understand. So now I'll begin to look at the argument itself, and we'll start with brief formulations of the argument. Before getting into all the details, I want to explore some simpler formulations of the argument. And rather than just doing one version, I actually want to share three different versions of the contingency argument stated more briefly. The first version contains four steps. Step one, anything that does not have to exist must be caused to exist by something outside of itself. Step two, the universe did not have to exist. Step three, therefore the universe must be caused to exist by something outside of itself. Step four, the cause of the universe must be immaterial, eternal, and spaceless. 
So this way of formulating the argument starts with the definition of contingent beings, then it posits that the universe is an example of such a being, and concludes that the universe has an explanation in any external cause, and that would be followed by step four, which offers a brief case for the nature of that cause as being immaterial, eternal, and spaceless, which are you know a few of the key attributes of God. A second way of formulating the argument is to define the two kinds of beings, contingent and necessary, and then argue that the universe is a clear example of a contingent being, and the implication of that is that the universe then must be explained in terms of some external cause, which we would posit to be God. So here are the three steps involved in this version of the argument. Everything that exists exists for a reason. Either it's self-existing and necessary, or it was caused to exist by something else. Step two, since the universe did not have to exist, it must be caused by something else, by something that does have to exist. Step three, God is the something that must exist and who causes the universe to exist. So to summarize these three steps, in step one, you're just pointing out the two different kinds of existence. In step two, you're saying that the universe is an example of a contingent being that did not have to exist, and what that means is it has to be caused by something else, and ultimately by something that does have to exist. And then in step three, you're saying, you're identifying what that something is that does have to exist, namely God that God is the cause of the contingent universe. And finally, the third way that you could formulate this argument briefly, again in three steps. Step one, anything that doesn't have to exist needs an external cause. Step two, the universe didn't have to exist, so it needs an external cause. Step three, there are no physical causes external to the universe, So the cause of the universe must be something supernatural. Now, this version of the argument has the advantage of avoiding terms and concepts that could be difficult to understand. You're not using the words contingent and necessary. Um, It also simplifies the identity of the cause to just something supernatural, rather than trying to identify any particular properties of that cause and, and tie those properties to God. So this more generic conclusion regarding the explanation for the universe is at least enough to falsify naturalism, but it's not so bold as to immediately commit that individual to theism. So I don't know which version you would prefer, that any of these versions would work, but the idea you're trying to convey, even if you choose some other version to convey it, is simply that something that doesn't have to exist must be explained in terms of something that does have to exist. Things that don't have to exist must ultimately be explained in terms of something that does have to exist. And of course, that which does have to exist is God. The universe does not have to exist, and it is best explained in terms of God, a necessary being who cannot not exist. 
We'll wrap there for today. Be sure to tune in next week where we'll look at the argument in detail, as well as some tactics for communicating this argument to others. To read my latest thoughts, visit the Thinking to Believe blog at thinkingtobelieve.com. Or if you'd like to comment on today's podcast, you can do so at the Thinking to Believe Facebook page. You can also send me any questions you might have at thinkingtobelieve at gmail.com. Until next time, keep thinking to believe.